if we want to have an impact on the world, I mean, there's no greater place than food. If we fix food, if we get it right, you can unlock so many great things in terms of improved human health, in terms of improved environmental outcomes. So I, I really, you know, want to see more smart people get involved in this space. Welcome back to another episode of The Secret Sauce by Foodhack, the global community of food entrepreneurs and innovators. I'm your host, Armin Anantar. In today's episode, we're joined by Daniel Scavin Rubin. We all know Daniel as the food and sustainability expert, consultant, advisor, and newsletter creator of Foodtech Weekly. But on today's episode, I was curious to learn more about the story behind Daniel, how he got to where he is, and the secret sauce behind his successful career. Plus, Daniel and I dig into a little bit more about what's been driving the food tech boom in the past few years and his predictions for the emerging food tech trends of 2021 and beyond. So let's jump in. Today I'm joined by Daniel Scaven Rubin. Daniel has what I describe as one of the best jobs in the food industry. But Daniel, technically your job has multiple facets. You're a consultant to the Rockefeller Foundation food team, your mentor at Big Idea Ventures, Bloomer Accelerator, and Catapult Ocean. You're an operating expert at Nordic Foodtech VC and Find Ocean Ventures. You're a supporter, advisor, and investor to a number of startups in the ag tech and food tech space. And last but not least, you're a curator of a fantastic newsletter, Foodtech Weekly. Daniel, did I miss anything there? Uh, wow, uh, thanks for that introduction and thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's, uh, we have all multiple identities, but I think you covered a lot of my professional engagements. Let's talk about your main job at the Rockefeller Foundation. I say that it's one of the best jobs in the world because essentially you get paid to travel the world and meet leading scientists, policymakers, and entrepreneurs that are trying to bring change in our food system. Give us an idea. Where has your job taken you in just the past three years? Well, obviously this year we haven't done much traveling, um, but it's, it's been a privilege to, uh, to have been a consultant for one of the largest and more impactful philanthropies in agriculture and food space uh, anywhere. So um, so the foundation works to advance a more nourishing and a more sustainable food system. And uh, as part of that, of course, you engage with food system actors, whether it's NGOs, nonprofits, entrepreneurs, academics, policymakers, or others that are trying to shift the food system in a better direction. So I, I do get to travel a lot, go to events and conferences, meet people, learn things, be inspired, Go to entrepreneurs and startups and, and see what's sort of cooking, uh, what the next generation foods will look like, and, and, and go and meet farmers and, and people who are actually growing food. So it's been a tremendous journey and a tremendous privilege to, to meet all these fantastic people and, and hopefully be able to support them along their journeys as well. Can you give us an idea of one conversation maybe that's really left an impression on you during this time? That's uh, really impossible because there's been... So, so many. One place, I think, which is always special to me is going to the Netherlands and the Wageningen University. It's ranked the number one food and ag university in the world. And it's always so uh, special and fascinating to be there and meet the scientists and the students and, and basically get a glimpse at what the future of food will look like because they have some of the most outstanding people in the world there working on anything from uh, food loss and food waste to plant-based meats to animal welfare to insects as animal feeds they're working on everything so it's always inspiring to go there i mean if you're into food it's like going to disney world or something 
things. It's, it's, it's a fantastic place. But th- there's no single conversation. I, I think every entrepreneur has a very interesting story to tell. And I try to share some of those stories in my newsletter, newsletters to, to help amplify those uh, narratives and stories. Absolutely. We'll, we'll put a link to Daniel's newsletter in the show notes below so you can follow that. Um, it's absolutely great. Uh, Daniel, from what I can tell, you didn't actually set out to have a, a career in the food tech industry. It just so happened to be that. In fact, one of your first jobs was working in the Danish entertainment company in 2006. Is that right? Well, I worked for Nordisk Film, which is, I guess, the oldest still operating movie company in the world. I was doing customer service, kind of behind the scenes stuff. But it's really fascinating because when you go there, it's actually also the movie set for TV shows and and old movies. So it's just a fun place to be with a lot of creative people. But yeah, I have a very broad background, both in terms of education and professional background. So I worked with a bit of everything before I sort of landed the last five, six years in the food space. What was your ambitions as, as a young Daniel? What did you want to be? Did you, did you have something set in stone or were you just sort of figuring it out along the way? So I, I originally started law school uh, <laughs> in Sweden because I, I felt that could be a, a good way of sort of improving the world a little bit maybe. Eventually found out I didn't have a passion for law. I did graduate uh, also graduated from Copenhagen with a bachelor degree in business. So when I when I came back, I started working for uh, the Trade Council of Denmark, which is part of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Denmark, trying to help Danish technology companies establish abroad and export abroad, because I always had this fascination for technology and innovation and what can do to, uh, for the world, and did that for five years and had a great time, both at their embassy in Sweden at their, and at their consulate in New York. But eventually I, I felt there was a lack of uh, true social impact. So that's why I decided to move move on. Mm-hmm. And how did the, the the Rockefeller gig come along? I mean, did they, did they approach you? Is it something that you applied for? Or what's the story there? So the story was, I told you I, I got tired of, of sort of uh, working for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Denmark because I felt there was lack, lack of social impact. But I really love the technology part. So I got a scholarship from Sweden to go to Georgetown University and study how we can leverage technology and innovation to make the world a bit better. And uh, had amazing professors there, an amazing time, and, and really took an interest in food and ag as this fantastic entry point to really changing the world. Because as we know, there's, there's no greater impact you can have than working in food in terms of human health impacts, environmental impacts, animal welfare, and so on. So I, I really geeked out about food and ag while at Georgetown in various ways. And one of my professors there was a guy called Raj Shah. And he, he noticed my interest for food and ag. And when he later became president for the Rockefeller Foundation, and, and they were about to refresh their food strategy, he asked if I'd be interested in coming and helping out as a consultant to do that. So um, that, that's how that transpired. And even before Rockefeller and, and before Ministry of Affairs, you were actually working as a, as a journalist, from what I can tell. And that kind of translates, I suppose, to Food Tech Weekly Newsletter. Did you ever consider becoming a journalist? Is that something that you thought could be you know, a viable career path for you? Or was that just a, a short stint that you were looking into? I just, I think, enjoy telling stories. And so I worked in radio and I worked in print media, the biggest newspaper for a bit. And I worked in you know university newspapers, always started newspapers in school and so on when I was a kid. So always enjoy that part. But it's also a very uh, tough business with a lot of competition and it, it's, uh, they're, they're struggling in terms of business models. It seems some of them have figured it out now, uh, sort of conventional media. 
So I, I don't think I wanted to pursue a career in that industry, but it definitely gave me some interesting tools and insights into the, how, how that in- industry works. Mm-hmm. And, and today, your job is, is so multifaceted. You know, you do all these different things from being, you're not just a consultant to the Rockefeller Foundation food team. You're working as a, as a mentor, uh, expert, uh, advisor, and investor in all these interesting startups. I think nine or 10 different startups across Europe, Africa, and the US. What, what really excites you? And if you really had to commit to one thing, where would you go? Do you, do you see yourself becoming an, an angel investor? Do you see yourself launching a business in the future? Do you see yourself or, or continuing to do all of these different activities as you, as you do today? Yeah, I feel really privileged to be working with the things I work on. You meet a lot of interesting people, you learn a lot. And I think it gives you hope and that we're actually winning because there's so much noise and negativity in the media and politics about the state of the world. And I think it's important to just take a step back and realize we're actually winning. I mean, humanity has been around for 200,000 years and it's actually in our generation we have this chance to eradicate hunger, eradicate poverty, you know, eradicate disease. So it's, it's really a fantastic time we live in, but sometimes we tend to forget because, you know, again, there's a lot of noise and negativity in media and politics. And for me, what excites me about food in particular is we have this big opportunity of changing the way we grow and distribute and consume foods that will hopefully make sure that our food system is sustainable, that it nourishes all people, cultures and communities can flourish. And that's not the case today because it's not what we designed the food system for. But I get excited, you know, meeting with actors in the food system because especially when they're working on, on things that I think could be really impactful in terms of you know, bringing about a more nourishing and sustainable and resilient food system. So, um, so I, I guess that's what, what, what's driving me. Whether I'll end up as an investor or in philanthropy or with a startup, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure I'd be able to just focus on one thing. I've always been a generalist in terms of uh, education, in terms of uh, professional experiences. So I think I'd be uh, too impatient to just focus on one thing such as running a startup in a specific vertical. So I, I like to have a very broad exposure to what's going on and try to be helpful, you know, when I can. Mm-hmm. What do you say to others who want to emulate your, your career path? I mean, it, it doesn't seem to like you followed a, a recipe book, you know, but where you are today and what you set yourself up to be, do in terms of investing into the interesting companies, how can someone follow that and what advice would you have for them? In general, I think it's hard to plan too far ahead. I think you should try to just do things that excites you and that you're passionate about. And sometimes it might feel like a certain job or educational experience doesn't make sense at the time, but then five or 10 years later, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So you don't have full clarity on, on all the pieces you need to fit into your next role. So I always try to think say that all the experiences you make along the way, the relationships are helpful because they sort of help build who you are. I did not have a clear career path in terms of where I was going. Again, technology and innovation has always been a a strong interest of mine. And for the last 10 years, how we can use tech and innovation to improve the world. And for the last five years, how we can use tech and innovation to improve the food space in particular. You know, I think you should try to, um, if you're interested in this industry, just plug into it, go to events, sign up for newsletters. Uh, You know, Food Hack is a great place to start uh, with the newsletters and events. Make yourself useful. So if if you're good doing, you know, marketing or 
any other type of activity, you can offer your services pro bono to uh, to a nonprofit or an NGO or a startup, but just try to get involved and, and try to meet new people and learn new things. And then along the road, I think new opportunities will, will just uh, unlock. But I did not have a clear sort of career plan and I still don't. <laughs> No, I love that point about, uh, you know, offering your time to companies that you really respect and really value. I think especially now in the food tech industry, you know, people who maybe are coming from in different industries, you know, it could be someone who's from the law industry or someone from, from business who wants to get into a, a high tech food tech startup, you know, like Geltor or someone like that, they go for an internship, just try to, to get their foot through the door at any capacity they can provide value. And that'll just give them some exposure and, and they can see whether that's, that's right for them or not. And uh, at the very least, you know, that fits through the door. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think young people should know that if they, and a lot of, you know, millennials and so on care about impact and having a purposeful, meaningful uh, professional career. And I think there's no other industry that can offer so much potential for impact. I mean, it's, it's food is the industry that impacts our health more than any other industry. Most of the you know, leading risk factors for premature dis- death or disease and disability like high BMI, high blood pressure, cardiovascular diabetes, they're diet-related. And, and the food system is 25% of greenhouse gas emissions, 70% of freshwater use, half of all vegetated land use. It uses probably 50 billion terrestrial animals, 500 billion ocean creatures. It enables uh, or facilitates, I guess, the spread of pandemics. So... If we want to have an impact on the world, I mean, there's no greater place than food. If we fix food, if we get it right, you can unlock so many great things in terms of improved human health, in terms of improved environmental outcomes. So I I really, you know, want to see more smart people get involved in this space instead of building, uh, you know, slightly better dating app or gambling site or, you know, pushing alcohol on people. Maybe, Maybe there's... There, there's other ways where you, where you can uh, have a great, great impact and, and do something meaningful. When you say get involved in, in this space, what is the best way to get involved? A lot of funding has gone into this space. Uh, a lot of companies have launched in the space of 2018 to 2020. Should more companies be launching moving forward? Or should uh, talented people be looking to join existing companies that are already on the growth, uh, on, heading on the growth sphere? It's, I, I think it's hard to say. I think we don't really understand all the fantastic things that lie ahead. Uh, we, we, we just don't have the mental capacity. Uh, I don't think we'd, 20 years ago, we'd imagine that we'd, we'd go around with you know, smartphones in our pockets and, and so on. So I, I think people should, there, there are many ways you can plug into the food system, whether you want to work in a nonprofit or NGO or in the policy side, or in, in sort of food tech, uh, whether you join an existing corporation or startup or, or you start your own. But if you, have, if you have the chance, see if you can try to get some different experiences, whether it's internships or consultancies or summer consultancies. Or, but just get exposure and, and try to figure out what you enjoy and, and where you could add value and, and try things out before you sort of hopefully land in a good place. And there are a couple of, you know, big things we need to solve for in the food system, you know, reducing food waste or eliminating food waste, really, uh, shifting diets and improving productivity. And in each of these buckets, there's probably a million things we could be doing. 
So I think there's a lot of fantastic startups that have not been uh, you know, established yet. There's so much we don't know about food and nutrition, the 25,000 biochemicals of food. We don't understand the gut microbiome, but it really impacts us as humans you know, that we are what we eat. There's so much, so many exciting things are going to happen, happen in the coming years. I think the way we, you know, again, the way we produce and distribute and consume foods will probably change more in the next 20 years than they have in the last 10,000 years. So it's a really exciting time to, uh, to be involved. So the, yeah, I read, I read a tweet this morning, which was essentially, if you can't build it, fund it. If you can't fund it, write about it. If you can't write about it, create it. If you can't, and then it's essentially just this whole loop. There's so many ways to do it. You know, whether, whether you build it, you uh, put money into it as a consumer, as an investor, or, or you write about it like we do in our newsletters. There's just so many things you can do right now in this space. And, and food, food tech is, is such a fast-moving industry. Can you give us an idea what has happened this year in the food tech industry? You know, a lot has happened. A lot of things have been moving. What's, what's the landscape looking like? The landscape is that I think there's a lot of optimism. There's a lot of uh, momentum. There's a lot of collaboration. There are a lot of investments. Uh, we don't have the data yet for 2020, but I, I saw some data saying that there were more investments in the first six months of this year than all of 2019. And I think last year, something like 2,000 ag tech and food tech companies got funding. So there are new clusters emerging. I, I think we're seeing a lot of uh, momentum in Singapore, for example. The government wants to increase uh, self-sufficiency, go from 10 to 30% self-sufficiency in food. They're investing a lot. They're, they're changing the regulatory. They were the first country now to approve cell-based chicken nuggets. So I think there's just a lot of activity in the space. And not just in one space. I mean, we're seeing a lot, of course, in alternative protein, whether it's plant-based or cell-based meat, dairy, and egg, or alternative animal feeds, or you know, myco, uh, fungi-based uh, things. But also in, in, the, in the food waste and post-harvest food loss reduction space, on the ag side, sort of upstream, closer to farmers, we're seeing a ton of things from, from autonomous vehicles to drones to sensors, uh, anything that can help farmers help them take better decisions and understand what's going on. And of course, reduce their in use of inputs and, and environmental impacts and so on. So there's just a lot of news and activity all over the line, I think. It'll be really exciting to sort of summarize 2020 um, because this space is really, really, really booming. And I mean, if you zoom in on a particular space, you know, plant-based, and there's some great protein landscaping maps by someone called Olivia fox Cabin. Mm -hmm. uh, if you compare her early versions three years ago of, of the alternative protein space where you had a couple of startups doing plant-based and cell-based meat, a couple of NGOs, nonprofits, VCs uh, going into the space. Today, it's, it's just exploded. It's probably 10 times larger. So, and, and that's just the plant-based and cell-based vertical. The same things are happening in other, in other spaces within food tech. So there's a lot of activity, which is exciting. Uh, obviously, a lot of smart people are, are trying to solve uh, some of humanity's greatest challenges. And, uh, and that's exciting. Yeah, you said in another podcast that the food system is about to change in the next few decades than it has in the past few thousand years. And I think in terms of the situation, um, a good summary would be that undernourishment is down. Uh, we're going to eradicate hunger in our lifetime. But on the other end, uh, dietary issues are up. So glo globally, yeah. chronic diseases account for about 70% of all deaths annually and 80% of certain chronic conditions can be prevented through a healthier diet. 
And then and something else you mentioned in another podcast was that most of our environmental issues are currently due to our farming system. Did I summarize it all right? Or do you think I, I missed something there? Of course, both billions, a billion and a half cows, uh, billions of chickens, billions of pigs, and, and hundreds of billions of, of fish. So it's really, uh, it's really impactful what we're doing, the way we're producing food, but it's also harming the environment. And, and we know that, and, and we need to solve for it. And you, you mentioned diets, and that's, of course, one of the big dilemmas or unintended consequences maybe of, of the 20th century. Because if you look back when we built the modern food system after the Second World War, the big issue was undernourishment and hunger everywhere. We had constant famines and, and there was also this huge fear that population was going to boom and we we're not going to be able to feed everyone. We were two and a half billion people in 1960. Today we're seven and a half billion people. So they were right that you know populations were booming. So when 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 we built the modern food system, we're really optimized for cheap calories and high yields. And when I say optimized, that's, that's policy and regulatory, that's ag subsidies, that's where our R&D dollars are going. That's how we designed the food system is to deliver cheap calories to people. And we succeeded. We, we sort of pushed down undernourishment under from maybe 50% back in, in the 1950s to around 10% today. It's, it's, it's a bit higher due to uh, covid but we have about 800 million people undernourished. Um, so we will and we can eradicate hunger in our lifetime. Uh, but at the same time, of course, we have this tsunami of diet-related disease everywhere in the, in the Western world where diets are the number one risk factor for disease and disability and premature death. We're over-consuming things like sugar, sodium, saturated fats, trans fats, processed meats, we're under-consuming, and this is the big problem, the under-consumption of all the protective, the healthy foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds and nuts, legumes, pulses, omega-3 or fish, and this has really tangible health impacts. And we need to solve for this because we, we, we can't just uh, rely on our health care system to deal with this. Actually, our food system right now is, is driving the healthcare system bankrupt. So we need to take a step back and, and really focus on what we're eating and how we're producing the food and, and make sure that people eat the right types of food. Obviously not tell people what to eat, but I think what's ex- exciting is in the next uh, couple of years or the next decade, I think we'll have a much more granular understanding of how the food impacts us, not just on, on, on a population level. We know that if people in general eat a lot of sugar, there's a higher risk of developing diabetes and so on. Mm-hmm. But we don't really know what's right for you and I based on our DNA and the phase in our life we're in. I think in the future, we will have sensors, either permanent or things that you swallow. You might have breathalyzers, but there may be things that can really tell you what you should and shouldn't be eating and will give you some direct indication. We already have this for diabetics. So they can scan a thing on their arm, which measures their you know, blood sugar, and they will get a live stream essentially on their smartphone how their food consumption impacts their insulin levels and so on. And I think we're going to have this for nutrition. We're going to have personalized nutrition. And that's going to be really exciting. So when people, because today it's really hard to balance that instant gratification of the chocolate bar at the grocery store checkout aisle versus perhaps getting diabetes 30 years from now. But if you get this instant alert from your cell phone that like your, your blood sugar is off the charts, you should not be eating that, then maybe people will start to reflect. And so I, I think we'll have a much more granular understanding of, of nutrition and, and how food impacts us. The biochemicals, there are 25,000 biochemicals in food that we you know, essentially are not tracking or monitoring. 
20 years ago, the Human Genome Project uh, enabled us to map human DNA. I think it was a $100 million project. Today, you can map your uh, DNA, your genome, for $150. Uh, so that's pretty insane. We went from $100 million to $150. For food, we haven't done this. So there's this nutritional dark matter where we have 25, 26,000 biochemicals in our food. The average broccoli has 1,500 biochemicals. We don't track these. We, don't, we track maybe 1% of them. So we, we don't know if a broccoli grown in, in France is more nutritious than a broccoli grown in the US and how the soil impacts it. And if you transport it and store it and when you start to process it, how it impacts your health. And, and when you cook it together with potato, how does that change the sort of nutritional values? We don't really know this right now. It's this nutritional dark matter, but scientists are hard at work trying to solve for this. And, and the Rockefeller Foundation and other funders are, are supporting this. So... I think there's just a lot of things to look forward to. Uh, progress isn't inevitable. We can still screw things up in a big way. But uh, I, I do think we, we, we should be hopeful that the, the future is worth looking forward to, that we can have a food system that people actually want. This is another thing that the Rockefeller Foundation has worked on, that when you look at books or TV shows or movies that depict a, a picture of the future, they're all very dystopic. They're post-apocalyptic. So... If I ask you if you've seen any movies about the future, you'll say, you know, Black Mirror, Handmaid's Tale, Matrix, Minority Report, WALL-E, Mad Max, uh, Blade Runner. I mean, they're all showing this picture of, of humanity living in very brutal urban landscapes where there's been this huge pandemic or robots took over. It's not a future worth looking forward to. So we did this food system vision price had 4,000 groups from all over the world coming together in over 1,300 teams, submitting 1,300 visions for what their local food system should look like in Delhi, in Iceland, in Switzerland, in, in you know, Hudson Valley, upstate New York, really saying this is what we want the food system to look like, given that we have change in terms of climate and technology and policy, and how can we design a better food system that works for everyone, that where we have better health outcomes, better environmental outcomes, and so on. So, my point is there are thousands of people working to, to sort of uh, envision a better food system. And there are thousands of people, entrepreneurs, startups, academics, that are trying to help bring these visions into reality to say that if we want to optimize for better environmental outcomes, better health outcomes, how can we do that? Of course, there are also policy issues about harmful food environments, school lunch programs. There's a lot of things we can do on the policy side. But, but I think technology and innovation can do a lot for us to, to build a better food system. Absolutely. Wow. Um, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. But let, uh, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I think, I think there's, there's so much people can, um, can take from that and look to. But I think where you and I always talk about, especially with these lists that we do, you know, um, whether it's Switzerland, Israel, Singapore that you're working on now, is finding companies that work on solutions that help in terms of sustainability, nutrition, but also a market share capture and which companies right now do you think are interesting and which areas are you bullish on, you know, trends next year, do you think are you bullish on that uh, are going to be emerging or continuing to take off in 2021? Yeah, and first to take a step back, I, I care about nutrition and environmental sustainability, but other people might want to optimize the food system for other, uh, other things, whether it's livelihoods or better gender outcomes or animal welfare, or, or there are a the number of things you can sort of optimize the food system for. Uh, so other, thing, other people might not care about nutrition and sustainability as much as I do. There's, I think, tons and tons of companies making strides right now in everything from reducing food waste to 
providing alternatives to animal source products. I mentioned environmental impacts of of, uh, the food system, and about two-thirds of that are related to production of animal source foods, uh, meat, dairy, egg, and fish. And and, uh, if we can provide people with products they love, in terms of the price, taste, convenience, uh, all the sensory experiences, taste and texture and so on, if we can provide people with products that they love, but sort of not doing it via animals, then that's a good thing for for the environment. So I I think this is a space with a lot of traction and that I'm excited about. There's a lot of things happening in terms of investments, in terms of new startups popping up left and right. And so plant-based and cell-based meat, dairy, and egg companies. And I think they have huge potential in making the food system more sustainable. In terms of nutrition, for me, the jury is still out. I'm not really sure if it's a huge win in terms of nutrition. Sometimes these products can be pretty processed. So that's something they need to work on, obviously. But in terms of environmental sustainability and, of course, animal welfare, it's, it's sort of a win. So I'm excited about that. But there's, there are many other fields where we're seeing a lot of activity as well. Yeah, you, you said something before that uh, people are loyal to the experience, the price, the convenience, and the, the active community around eating meat. They're not necessarily loyal to the fact that it comes from a, a dead animal carcass. Well, some people are. I mean, in Sweden, I think uh, hunters shoot about 100,000 moose uh, or elks each year. So some people do like hunting animals and, and sort of the whole process from, from forest to table. But I think most people are not loyal to the fact that you know meatballs or, or so on come from an animal. And I'm saying this because humanity, humans have used animals for you know our entire history as machinery on the farms, like oxen or transportations, like horses or pigeons that we use to carry letters. Or um, we use them for protection, whether you know wolves turn into dogs to protect us or. We, we used um, animals to keep us warm, their fur. But whenever a new technology came along, like the car, uh, we said goodbye to the horses. You know, we don't need horses for mobility anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and it, we got to telegraph instead of these pigeons carrying letters. So whenever a new technology came along, it, it showed that humanity wasn't really loyal to, to the horse. They were loyal to mobility. And I think for a lot of people, they're loyal to the, to the price, the taste, convenience, um, the whole sensory experience of, of animal source products, but they're not necessarily loyal to the fact that it's from a dead animal. Uh, we're already eating, you know, vanillin, which is uh, produced in bioreactors. Diabetics use insulin produced in di- uh, bioreactors. And I, I think people one day will drink milk made in bioreactors, just like we, you know, drink beer made in bioreactors through brewing. But it's a mental shift and, and diets are sticky and it'll take time for people to understand and you know, build a position, what you feel about it. There, there are technical obstacles, uh, regulatory obstacles, consumer acceptance obstacles. But I, I think you're, you're, uh, you're right that we're, most of us are not loyal to the fact that animal source products come from animals. But that's a hypothesis. Time will tell. <laughs> Another thing you mentioned in that podcast, the, the Warp News podcast, which I, I recommend everyone goes checks out, uh, is, is that uh, innovation is not always using another shiny object or technology. What, what did you mean by that? Well, I mean, innovation doesn't necessarily have to be a new hardware product. It, it can also be an innovation in terms of business models, in, in terms of thinking in new ways. So I, I think it's just important to to keep that in mind, that we um, we don't necessarily need to invent 
shiny gadgets like drones and sensors and autonomous vehicles and robots, sometimes an innovation can be maybe a new service or a new business model that creates a lot of value for people and, and, uh, and sort of maybe pushes the, the food system in a better direction. What about, uh, everyone's been talking about, you know, regenerative agriculture and, and reducing carbon emissions. What are your thoughts on that, especially going into 2021? I think regen ag will grow in importance. And it's the idea of, instead of working against nature, you work with nature. Might be things like cover crops, perennials, strip cropping, where you have a field of different types of crops. So you have natural predators killing uh, the, the pests, so you don't need to use as much pesticides. Silver pasture, agroforestry, where animals and trees are part of uh, sort of your, your growing landscape. So it's, it's really about working in concert with nature instead of working against it. There's a great farm call, a film called The Biggest Little Farm, which is sort of uh, demonstrates this. We don't really know yet the impact in terms of environmental savings, you know, carbon, carbon emission savings, nutrition impact, and so on. But uh, I, I really find regenerative agriculture fascinating. And it makes sense because, again, it's, it's trying to work more in concert with nature instead of forcing nature to go in a certain way and, and using, of course, irrigation and pesticides and herbicides and specialty seeds and machinery to, to sort of get certain outcomes. But instead, you, you try to work together with nature. So I, I am excited about regenerative agriculture. I think we'll see business models and companies capitalizing on this, whether it's helping farmers to showcase that they're uh, using regenerative practices or enabling consumers to buy food that's been grown using regenerative practices. And, and hopefully we'll have more academic evidence around the, the true impact of, uh, of regenerative. And, and speaking about you know, true impact, and, and sorry, now I'm going away from your question. One thing we really need for the food system is true cost accounting, because mm-hmm. we don't have polluter pays principles in agriculture. We don't really. And when we produce foods, there are net positives and net negatives for the environment and nutrition and so on. And, and we don't really price in all these externalities. And it's extremely hard, but we should. So this might mean that some foods would become cheaper and others would become more expensive if we price in the true cost of food, which we currently don't. And I, I think this is really important. So speaking about regenerative agriculture, if you, if you can link that to sort of true cost accounting, then, then you start to understand all the net positives and benefits, but also any net costs that uh, regenerative agriculture has uh, to society. Absolutely. I'm going to jump back to some of the other points that you mentioned. So you were talking about personalized nutrition, which I think is absolutely one that we've seen take off this year, likely due to COVID and everyone trying to um, better themselves. And the whole better themselves category has, has really taken off. Food as medicine is another one. But what real business cases can, can scale in the personalized nutrition sector? I mean, we are seeing, for example, a lot of ready meals and ready-to-cook meals, uh, startups delivering in Europe, for example, you have Simple Feast and so on. We don't obviously have personalized nutrition yet. So we're, we're not, I think we're not where we want to be yet. But I think what's exciting is once you can start Obviously, we know that poor diets lead to poor health outcomes. And some, some actors in society, like insurance companies, care about this. Again, the US, the, the food system drives the health system 
bankrupt. They're, they're paying $300 billion per year to treat people with diabetes. So it's really a crisis. If we can get people, incentivize people to eat better, you, you, you're going to save a lot of money and you're going to improve people's quality of life and ex, you know, inc- increase longevity. So if we can find business models that bring healthy food to people, make them affordable, make them accessible, whether that is through online delivery or vending machines or any other type of business model, I think that's exciting. I think it'll, it'll be good for people, it'll be good for society, because again, we haven't found, no, no country has really cracked a code on how we reverse the trends on high BMI, high blood pressure, obesity, you know, even certain forms of cancer and stroke are diet-related. So if we can reverse these trends, there's huge positive benefits for, for uh, you know, quality of life and longevity and, and, and GDP and so on. And we also know with COVID that if you had, for example, high, be- high blood pressure and, and you were obese, you had a much higher risk of being hospitalized and sadly uh, passing away from COVID versus if you had good you know, metabolic indicators. So there's a lot we could and should do. But again, diets are almost like climate change. They take place, you know, it, it happens over time. You don't really notice what's going on until it's too late. And again, you have instant gratification, like eating that chocolate bar when you check out of the grocery store, you check out aisle, uh, and then after 20, 30 years, suddenly you have diabetes maybe. And so it's, we need to find ways that nudge people maybe into eating better and either health, eating healthier. I think food environments are unhealthy around us. If you go to a train station today, it's like a food court where trains happen to pass by. You can go to a hospital and they will have vending machines with candy. Like, you know, the same, at least in Europe, the government will pick up your uh, healthcare bill. So the same government that has to pay for, you know, treating people with diabetes is trying to make a quick dollar on selling people candy bars. It doesn't make sense. And, and you have it in subway systems. You, ha- you have just harmful food environments everywhere people look and, uh, and sort of normalizing these unhealthy foods. And that bothers me. And I, I think we need to find ways. And it does not have to be policy, really. We don't have to ban things uh, or tax things. Maybe sometimes, but it's not always the solution. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's enough to just have this sensor or indicator telling you that, hey, you just ate this and it's actually really bad for your health really bad. And I, I think once people start to realize that, hopefully that can help them shift consumption patterns. There, there's, there's other stupid things we can do, stupid little things that are actually really impactful. So there's uh, the Better Buying Lab, a World Resources Institute in the UK, they've done a lot of research, menu labeling. So if you ca- call uh, you know, a soup, a healthy vegetable soup, consumption will go down. And then if you call it like uh, a, a, a spicy Cuban soup, con- consumption and purchases will go up. It's the same ingredients, but it just sounds more appetizing. So I think there's a lot of things we can do, of course, on the policy side, but also you know, technology, innovation, just thinking in new ways uh, in helping people, shifting, helping people shift to you know, healthier dietary patterns. And I know your original question was about personalized nutrition, and I totally veered off. Can you talk about some of the companies that you're advising and how they're working there? Yeah, so all the companies I advise, by the way, are in the footer of my uh, newsletter. I try, I try to disclose who I'm working with so people know if I have a bias. So I'm, I'm working with companies to, like uh, Hooked. They're doing plant-based fish. Uh, NoQo Foods, they're doing plant-based cheese. Uh, Biomilk, they're growing real human breast milk in bioreactors. Uh, they're in the U.S. Erudically, at-home ver- vertical farming system, also in the U.S., but a Bosnian team. 
working with beet, of course, they have vending machines with plant-based foods uh, expanding in Stockholm right now. Supporting Ignitia, which is active in West Africa. They have hyperlocal weather forecasts via te- text message. They have over a, over a million farmers paying for this service, which is pretty amazing. Also supporting cold hubs in Nigeria. They build cold cauldrons for market vendors to store their produce. So, and then I'm probably forgetting a couple right now, and I'm sorry. It's not intentional. So I think the the red thread, the sort of common denominator is all of these companies try to shift the food system towards more nourishing and sustainable patterns. And, you know, if, if a company doesn't, I'm not really excited about it. And I don't want to give examples because they'll feel bad. But I basically feel that if you're building something and it's not improving either the environment or sort of human nutrition, I'm, I'm not super excited about it. Mm-hmm. No. One, so one other company I should mention is Volta Green Tech. So they're trying to solve the issue of uh, methane emissions from cows by growing seaweed. They feed it to cows and thus reduce the methane emissions by you know, 60, 70, 80% and building a factory now in Sweden. Yeah, absolutely. Those guys are great as well. All these companies, uh, I've seen them featured quite a few times uh, in the press and also in your newsletter. Um, I'm interested to see there's no insect-based uh, companies in your portfolio. A- any reason why or... Well, there's not a big insect as food or feed industry in Sweden. It was actually um, only approved uh, a month ago or something, insect as food by Swedish authorities. There's one company called Tebrito, and of course I speak to Tebrito from time to time. Insects are fascinating. Obviously, insects are, are part of, of, of the natural ecosystem and, and cycle. We haven't really used them in the food system, but the cool thing about insects is, of course, they can consume food waste and turn it into protein in a couple of weeks. So whether you're using black solar fly larvae or yellow mealworms or other insects, you, you can use organic waste like fr- fruits and vegetables unsold from, from farmers or supermarkets. And you feed them to these insects in a couple of weeks, the insects or the larvae are mature, and you can feed them live to fish or, or hens or processed to, uh, to animal feed. But the big companies are out you know, in Europe and North America. You have Protex in the Netherlands, Insect in France, AgriProtein in South Africa. In the US, Beta Hatch just raised $11 million, I think, or $9 million. You have Entera Feed, Enviroflight in North America. So there's, there's a lot of activity in Europe and, and uh, North America. Animal feed, of course, is a big issue we need to solve for because we're using a lot of soy. So we cut down rainforest uh, to grow soy. And, and this is really bad. We're using like the most biodiverse country on earth, Brazil, uh, to feed our cows. It doesn't make sense. And in, in the fish space, we're using a lot of forage fish uh, like uh, an- anchovies and sardines and, t- and turn it into fish feed for carnivorous fish like salmon. It's not sustainable to sort of take fish out of the ocean and put plastic back. Mm-hmm. So w- we need alternatives. And, and, and three big contenders, I guess, are insects as animal feed and algae and also single-cell proteins. There are pros and cons with all of them. But um, that w- we basically need better animal feeds to reduce the environmental footprint of, of the whole livestock uh, industry and, and the industry of raising animals. Because feed, is, it's a big cost driver, but it's also a big environmental uh, driver. I think we've covered uh, the, the food tech trends quite a bit. It just People can just look at your portfolio, the companies you advise, and, and just make their own decisions on, on what they think your, your suggestion of food tech trends are. So what I'm curious to know, what is the role of an advisor? What does it mean to be an advisor to startups and, and uh, what, what do you do? So I guess essentially uh, bottom line is you try to 
give them advice to shorten the learning curve and avoid repeating mistakes, whether it's in terms of fundraising, where I can help them, or uh, recruitment, or business development, sales, or uh, PR, marketing, communications, uh, in various ways, working with media, working with influencers. There's so much you can do. And a lot of startups have, they share these same challenges. Like we need to make money, but before we do that, we need to find the product market fit and and we need a team, but we also need to fundraise. And uh, what do we start? Where do we start? And so a lot of startups have this great idea for a product or a service or some innovation and uh, and share some common challenges. And, and their advisors can be helpful. Board members and advisors can be helpful in, in sort of accelerating their trajectory a little bit. So that's you know some of the things I, I support my uh, food tech startups with. Startups that are really hot right now, different people want to join their advisory board. How should they select the right people to join their advisory board or not? Yeah, great question. So I guess, first of all, it's when you're early stage, it can be a good idea. You don't need advisors, but it can be a good idea. Uh, obviously, when you're a startup, you don't have a lot of funding. So typically, you, you pay the advisor with a little bit of equity in the company. But I guess you try to add skill sets that you lack. So if you're from you know, a very strong technical background, maybe all of your co-founders are also very strong technical background. And maybe you want to add people with different skill sets, different experiences, whether it's business development or marketing or fundraising. But maybe there are some skills, things you haven't done before that can help you with opening doors, get, help you get distribution and, and so on. So I guess it's about identifying some core advisors and then, as always, like build this almost Rolodex of fellow travelers that, that you, um, you want to be able to call. Uh, people in your network that want to be fellow travelers and supporters, not necessarily board members or advisors, but just someone you can lean on. So you basically identify what, what kind of challenges you have and then you try to find people that have expertise in these areas. And, and you go out and find them in, you know, on LinkedIn, events, conferences. You see people in newsletters and articles or word of mouth. But you basically identify people you think could add value to your, to your startup. And Daniel, I'm coming down to my, my last question. Um, I've known you for, I think, about six months. We connected from the internet, uh, I think, from, from our newsletters. And we've since been in contact. What I've learned in that time is that you are an extremely busy person in the sense that you do a lot of different things, but somehow you manage to uh, keep it all under control. And if I were to write you a one sentence line question, you would reply with two paragraphs. How do you do it? How do you manage your time? What is your secret sauce to, to time management? And then more generally, what is your secret sauce to your career? I think my secret sauce to the career is just to be open and curious and, uh, and enjoy learning about other people and their journeys and, and try to be helpful to people. And just building relationships, it's one of the most powerful things, I guess. It's just having a lot of friends and allies to lean on and be able to reach out to. So just keep learning and, and, and be curious. That's sort of the secret sauce to the, to the career. In terms of time management, you know... I, I, I don't sleep enough, so that's, I can't recommend that. I, I have a very loving, supportive wife who lets me do my crazy things, even in late evenings. But it's because I, I love what I'm doing. I think there's a sense of urgency. There are people out there without food. Um, there are people 
that have really poor diets. And we have the tools and resources to solve these. Like all these problems are solvable. So I think there's a strong sense of urgency that we want to solve this. We want to solve food waste. We want to solve methane emissions from cows. We want to solve harmful food environments. We want to solve that we don't understand, you know, the gut microbiome. There, there, we have all these questions. We want to solve them. So I'm impatient. Yeah. So time management, really tricky question. I try to, uh, I try to prioritize the key tasks I need to get done and I, I get them done. And then I, I try to delegate and I try to, you know, I'm never the smartest person in the room. So if someone comes and asks me a question, I can probably send them a couple of resources. But I say, you should really read this newsletter or you should follow this person or really engage with this person because they're the expert here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just try to be, I'm like a human router. You, you get a question, you send it somewhere. You get another question, you send it someplace else. So um, don't try to do everything myself, I guess. That's my ambition. That's a great tip. I, I love that. Daniel, it's been a pleasure having you on here. Is there any last minute things that you want to plug in? Obviously, we're going to plug in the Food Tech Weekly newsletter. We're going to plug in the podcast, the old podcast that you were previously on. And also a final question. Um, if people want to uh, reach out to you for advice or uh, just get some feedback, is that possible? Of course. People can always uh, ping me on LinkedIn, for example. Um, I'll try to try to respond. Final plug, I don't know. You know, the next year is the UN Food Systems Summit. It's a pretty big deal. It's, it's almost uh, like the climate conference where, you know, as a global community, we're trying to figure out what we want to do with the food system because there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of opportunities. So I think the UN Food Systems Summit is an exciting big thing next year where you can get engaged and, and sort of raise your voice and, t- and tell people what kind of food system you want. And, and then also find like-minded people and just start building it. Another final plug is, of course, for everyone to engage with Food Hack. You know, subscribe with the newsletter, listen to this podcast. You're already doing that, so that's great. And and once we can meet in person again, start showing up for the Food Hack events because it's really a tremendous resource. It's one of the best I know out there. So I really admire the work you're doing. It's really important and powerful and and impactful, and it's creating a lot of value for a lot of people. So so thank you for that, Armand. Super. Thank you so much for plugging us in. We we don't get that too often, but. Uh... <laughs> Happy to close off on that. Daniel, thanks so much for for, uh, being on the podcast and uh, we'll we'll, uh, speak to you over email soon. Thank you for having me. Have a good one.